Call a spooky detective in honor of the night house. What's your favorite cinematic supernatural mystery? Uh, I'm going to change my answer at the last minute because Dave mentioned the word detective and I thought of Detective Pikachu, which you don't think is a supernatural mystery, <laughs> but it is. How is it a supernatural mystery? There's a, uh, is there's Mewtwo a supposedly... found in nature? Uh, no, but no, this there is a question is a, for patches. There is a, is a Pikachu who can speak, and we don't know I don't why. Think he's and there are supernatural. He's unnatural. There are ghost Pokemon, wow. so I'll give you that. Um, wow. <laughs> I'm Matt Patches. I'm going to go with, and this is because Zvenguli played this on TV this weekend, but I'm going to go with William Castle's House on Haunted Hill. Very spooky. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going with Firewalk with me, which I still think I only might maybe understand. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. Do I want to know what Svengali TV is? Svenguli? Svenguli. He's, he's a, he's a classic TV? public access, uh, dresses up as a, as a ghoul and shows you horror movies guy. Oh, of course. Um, I, I wish I knew who that was. Uh, sounds like a character. Uh, anyway, I'm still David Ehrlich and I, of course, also am going to go with Detective Pikachu. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room 361. It's Pandemic 74. It is, yes, of course, still a pandemic. Wear your masks. It's the week of Wednesday, August 18th. That is the day that in 1969, Jimi Hendrix and the Band of Gypsies closed out the first Woodstock Music Festival. Yeah, we all remember that. Do you guys watch the Woodstock 94 documentary? 99? Yes. Yes, I, yes, I did. Oh, 99, right. Yes, 94 was the one that didn't end in fire. Uh, yeah, I was like, that documentary is probably not as interesting. <laughs> uh i should i should watch that at some point in my life because i old enough to remember that one and not the original woodstock um i don't know if we have reviews this week i'm really in suspense about what's gonna happen next Ooh, the executor came out today so maybe we don't it have sure reviews. it sure did not that i'm uh, remotely close to getting it myself but uh everyone out there if you don't know what we're talking about well you're gonna continue not knowing what we're talking about because we have <sighs> a trio of new reviews this week Um, maybe we should read one and save some for next week just to make sure the first line of (laughs) our first review here does reference what we were just talking about so i guess i was proven incorrect but jamacon or jamacon hard to say says there are many movies and shows but only one war room um they're of course referring to the new uh, the the faith-based film the war room uh, which if you <laughs> haven't read the Wikipedia page of, I highly recommend. Come for the Galaxy of Heroes talk. Stay for some of the best film and TV culture discussion out there. I came to the pod by way of blank check and have since added it into the weekly rotation right alongside it. Shout out to wait, David wait. and his... Yes? I what? wonder how someone would get to hear from blank check. It must have been from hearing uh, me or Patches because I don't believe David has ever mentioned uh, on blank check. Right. Yeah. That, I, <laughs> no, that can't be true. I think you should go back and check the record on that one. I am definitely uh, not going back and re-listening to him. I'm going maybe, here. maybe Jamaican will. Um, <laughs> anyway, they were in the middle of shouting me out, Katie. Thank you. Shouting out mm-hmm. to David and his Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And also to Katie, who would never have heard this had she continued to rudely interrupt David, <laughs> making a count with Jack and Rose. Oh, Sit man. back 
and enjoy deep discussions that will shed new light and uncover levels of meaning in today's films and tele television and the news thereof with the occasional look back in time, look back in time, look back in time. Definitely <laughs> worth a listen. Is review helpful? Yes. Making it count, indeed. Top tier movie podcast is TJ Mudd. Love the show. As much as, oh, okay, we're about to get into a very serious subject here. Um, and I do owe our listeners an apology. We'll get there. Love the show. As much as I love Galaxy of Heroes talk, I do have to leave a review to chastise David for confusing the brilliant 2002 horror film Fear.com <laughs> with the even more brilliant 2006 Frankie Muniz vehicle Stay Alive, in which, if you die in the game, you die for real. Now, as listeners of last week's episode will remember, we, we I went off. I, we, I can't even throw my colleagues under the bus for this. It's all on me. But the tagline that I was ascribing to the brilliant 2002 horror film, Fear.com, which I said was, you die in the game, you die in real life. I was wrong on both counts, even though I was right in my heart. That tagline does belong to the movie Stay Alive, which came along four years later, and is, if you die in the game, you die for real. I think my tagline, slight tweak, is better. And could have made a mint as a uh, marketing executive in 2006. The, the death of uh, like the, the fading teen movie boom, the beginning of internet-related horror. Uh, that could have been my chance to shine, but alas, it wasn't. But thank you to everyone who called me out on that. Uh, it needed to be said. Accountability is important, and I appreciate you. Um, finally, we have a review from K. Selly Money Baby. It says, review. Listening to your podcast is so fun. It's just like hanging out with my best buds, except oh. as if I'm hiding under the bed uh-huh. and they don't know I'm there. Or oh. that we are even buds patches. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> However, now that you know we are buds, the best of buds, I would like to ask a favor. For almost all of time, which is how long we've been recording this podcast. Yeah, yep. You yeah. guys are not nice to each other. And I believe firmly that buds should get along as buds are known to do. Usually you're arguing to go something like this. Ahem. Oh boy. Matt Patches. I think this movie is pretty fun, kind of good in its own special way. David Ehrlich spelled incorrectly. You just got a call from the morgue. Ding dong. Cinema is dead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have to say the morgue in, in K selling money baby's town has to work on their bedside manner. I, um, uh, <laughs> I wish you had punchlines like that. You really need to work on your like... You need more noisemakers and <laughs> wacky horns. Our, I'm just here to tee up our <laughs> listeners, to yes and our listeners, to, to you know, over-deliver on what my setups for them. Maybe you guys could all try to use love for a change as an experiment once in a while. I will kick it off with examples, and maybe you can keep the ball rolling. Matt Patches, I respect you as a husband and father and for your life's work as a film critic. <laughs> Sincerely, Dave Seven. Aww. Or maybe David Ehrlich, those new glasses, no, must be something else. You are glowing. Katie Rich could say this. Oh, she couldn't say that because I, unlike my other co-hosts, have turned off video on our Zoom for a long time after <laughs> it's true. someone took one very unfortunate screen grab and I decided that it was a better alternative than scarring my face with acid. Um, and I've also had the same glasses for about 10 years. Probably yeah, I, was gonna, I thought you were just going to say you don't buy new glasses. I don't. can't afford them. Um, anyway, going on. Uh, next one. I never thought of it that way. You have a unique perspective and are my friend. Everyone can say this in unison several times per episode. (laughs) (laughs) Once you all become good at using love, ultimate force within the universe, you will probably need to change the name for the pod. I've considered this ahead of time and have some suggestions. (laughs) (laughs) Being friends in the peace room, not fighting in a just regular room. 
<laughs> smiling in the demilitarized zone. I like Thank that you. That's very good. It's very good. Um, I would say it's not especially catchy, but it's not as if anyone is listening to our podcast to begin with. So a less catchy name, I don't think it's really uh, All of these people are. I know. Yeah, well. you say? You're reading reviews of the podcast. <laughs> reviews that we have uh, we have threatened them into leaving so they don't have to learn about the executor and how They're still fucking here. insane the prerequisites are to get it. Thank you. This review is helpful. I'm doing my best. You really are a case, Ellie Money Baby, and we appreciate you. Phenomenal. Money Baby. Oh, they're finishing their own quote. I'm doing the best. Money Baby. <laughs> K. Selly. P.S. I am on Letterbox. We have a Letterbox shout out here. Named K. Sell. That's K. S. E. L. I talk about movie. Uh, very go. helpful review. Definitive. As the review made sure to point out that it was. Thank you all for leaving us reviews on iTunes of Fighting in the War Room. As you've just heard, if you go on Fighting in the War Room and leave us a review, we'll read it live on the show. Can't wait to hear from you. David, you did really well. I respect that you and your ability to do that. Go fuck yourself, we're, Dave. We're friends. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, let's get let's get through this in a hurry so I can hear what you all have to say uh, this week. After months of waiting, if that's what you can call what people are doing, uh, the movie that won Virtual Sundance earlier this year, won, as films are wont to do in recent years, both the uh, jury and the audience award, uh, was Coda by Sean Hader. Uh, and it finally came out. Apple TV bought it for, a, I guess Apple technically bought it for their TV platform, for Apple TV+. Plus for a truly unspeakable amount of money, I believe $25 million. $25 million. Shattered the record that was set for uh, Palm Springs uh, (laughs) last year or two years ago. and wasn't even funny about it, as opposed to that The Suicide Squad couldn't even buy this movie from Sundance. (laughs) I I mean, certainly not with its profits. By now it could with its box office grosses. But uh, they paid a pretty penny for it. I mean, with the streamers getting in that space, the amount of money being paid for these movies is almost irrelevant, but also just pushes out the smaller distributors from having their hands in the jar. Uh, With the streamers and, and for worse. tech giants specifically, who like yes. Apple, who are like, for whom Apple TV is, in, it, its entire existence is a lost leader. Yes, and certainly this movie is part of that equation. Um, and uh, yeah, so whatever. They snapped it up. It was a big deal. They made this flash they wanted to make. They were able to hype this up for months in advance. And it finally opened on Apple TV Plus and also in a handful of theaters with very little fanfare, as far as I can tell. Uh, I know yeah, I would agree. I, I didn't like... see. I feel like critics kind of exhausted themselves maybe talking about it at Sundance. And I don't know how much promotion can a small family drama really get when everyone is obsessed with Suicide Squad versus Free Guy <laughs> and the survival uh, of theaters. I don't know. And, tough, and tough out there and, for a little movie. And of course, unlike I don't know any article written about a weekend at the box office these days, we cannot forget to take into account that there is a pandemic that is muting so much pop culture, much the same way as snow mutes sound. If we can get poetic about it for a second, although sound uh-huh. is probably a bad analogy to make. I was about to say this is a strange is. direction you're going. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's just the analogy that I've always used. I grew up in the snow. I don't know, but. Uh, uh, Coda stands for the child of deaf adults, and uh, it is a movie about the child of deaf adults. Uh, it is 
in some respects, rather conventional Sundance feel-good fair. It is actually a remake of a 2014 French film, film, a film, French <laughs> film called <laughs> Les Familles Bellier, directed by Eric Lart. Well, you go to France Lard, one Lard to time. Go. <laughs> no, go. Go to, I've gone to France enough times that I should not have had nearly that much trouble. Uh, Lartigo? Lard, I, I'm definitely fucking that up. I feel like Matt Patch is over here who has never pronounced anything wrong in his life. God, and damn. I respect him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, and uh, it, yes, it's about a, uh, a teenage girl um, who is named Ruby. She is played quite capably and charismatically by Amelia Jones. And she is at an inflection point of her life. It's kind of a coming of age story. She's considering leaving her family's fishing business in Gloucester, Massachusetts. She's really, as the child of deaf adults, I mean, she is um, oftentimes a go-between between her parents, uh, who are wonderfully played by Marley Matlin, and also, uh, what's the name of the actor who plays Troy Kotzer. Troy Kotzer, yes, thank you, who is, I think, really the standout for me in the cast. I haven't seen this movie since January and his performance has stuck with me. Yeah, um, great. And, and her brother. And uh, and so she's sort of torn between whether to stay or to follow her dreams to, to sing and to go to a music school in Berkeley on the other side of the country. Or is Berkeley... That's in Boston. Not It's not in Berkeley, in California. The Berkeley College of Music. The Berkeley School of Music. Two E's Berkeley. Yeah. Um, in Boston, and uh, which is still, you know, not not so far from Gloucester, but far enough that she would no longer be able to work on the family boat. And so you get into pretty conventional Sundance territory in that regard, but the, and in some of the broadness with how this is handled, um, I think the one big misstep with this movie, as I think my very esteemed colleague Matt Patches will agree with me, is the Eugenio Derbez character <laughs> who plays her music teacher, who's very sitcomish. Um, but the, uh, the, the way that this movie sort of leans into to this life, the way the family has their dynamic together, um, and puts codas and, uh, the, the family dynamics they share on screen, um, without shying away from them. And as far as I can tell anyway, without, uh, you know, tamping a lot of these elements down, uh, is very touching. Uh, I'm going to pass the baton just by saying that when movies work in the abstract, they can really get away with murder. And this is a movie that that shoots for the moon in a lot of respects and takes requires a certain amount of suspension of disbelief, not to have your eyes roll out of their sockets. Um, but because I think it's sort of vibing and, and working on a general level, uh, it's able to get away with things that a movie that was not quite so functional wouldn't, and the things that are beautiful about it, particularly the relationship that she has with her family, are able to shine in spite of its missteps. That's my take. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's like that scene in A Star is Born where she starts singing the song that she's sang to him the night before, and he's composed already, and she steps on stage, and you're like, this doesn't make sense for it to work, and you're like, fuck it. I love it. I'm going with <laughs> it. Uh, there are many moments in Coda like that. I watched it again. Uh, I saw it at Sundance. I saw it again this past week, and it... um. It holds up. I like a movie that kind of like takes you by the hand and says, hey, we're going to take you exactly where you think we're going to go and you're going to uh, live every second of it. And the lived in nature of the family relationship, like you said, David, is a huge part of that. Just like the confidence of the filmmaking that like kind of takes all of those steps without having to be like, yes, yes, we know this is a familiar story. It's just like, no, everyone's coming of age is feels unique to them. So let's make this uh, feel like a special story, even if it uh, has familiar trappings to it, too. I like it a lot. Yeah, I would say I think this movie is pretty fun, kind of good in its own special way. Um, what are we supposed to say? That's uh, a callback. Come dong on, dong Dora, thank dead. you for a review. Um, <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, no, this movie has really stuck with me too since seeing it in January at home in the not luxurious uh, Sundance at home streaming uh, experience. But um, I, I think what I was really struck by, uh, well, two things. One, we're kind of hovering around this, but I saw our colleague Stephanie Zaharik uh, tweeting about the movie Respect, this Aretha Brett, uh, Franklin biopic that's out right now that I don't think any of us have seen yet. Have any of us seen this film? Nope. Um, but, you know, it's kind of getting dragged by a lot of a lot of critics, and she tweeted something to the effect of, like, so often people are, are kind of slamming movies for being cliched when maybe that's just, like, movie language working, and there are ways to go back to that well and satisfy audiences or, or create satisfying moments. And I really, I really do believe that, that, like, we too often mistake cheap maneuver or, like, fulfilling... Uh, cinematic language to be cheap maneuvers because we've seen them before we can detect that um if, especially if we watch a lot of movies and i think coda falls into that a little bit where it's like as david described it's almost sundance blueprints at times or this feels really familiar but um it's so satisfying i think the characters are are well drawn and dimensional and and they really want different things and the 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 situation that this young woman finds herself in is really uh complicated i don't know how she can choose whether to go off and live her own life or really be this important keystone member of a family that needs to communicate in order to survive. I mean, the business is on the line and she is the one who can translate essentially for all the different people that they meet. And they, they don't want to put her in that bind, but they do. I just, I found that to be a very rigorous challenge, um, uh, uh, decision. I guess the other thing is I found the movie really cinematic because of the use of, uh, American sign language, like having people talk and be expressive and using their hands and and really emoting the way that people who communicate with ASL do. I, I found that I don't know if that's a trite thing to say because hey, this is just how they do it. Um, but yeah, I but don't get I to see it on screen very often, it's, and yeah, it's, it's really not, physical. It is not rendered on screen very often. I'm sure it is yeah. obviously a part of the daily reality of deaf people you know, no, of across course. the country, but it is not something that. Um, that is put on screen very often, and I think you know the as much as the but the stage and block sort of, sequences yes, that are but dramatic. But as much as the movie is like, able to visualize the ability for them to communicate, it also uh, strains to visualize their inability to communicate or, or to hear each other in the figurative sense. I mean, it's touching if if a bit pointed as a screenwriting trope that she wants to be a singer and that her family, who she loves so much, and vice versa, can't hear her sing, can't appreciate the talent, the passion that is driving her away from them, potentially. Um, and that is, I think, something that resonates with anyone who's wanted to do something that their parents um, may not necessarily understand or be able to appreciate. Um, and this is you know, a particularly heartfelt example of that because it's so well-meaning. Everyone it's, they want to be able to hear, they want to be able to share in her gift and her love of these things, but can't. Um, and there are some really effective scenes that have to do with her singing, you know, which are also some of the most contrived scenes in the movie, but, you know, work, I think, because of how much they swing for the fences. Yeah, there's a, it made me just think about how expressive uh, deaf actors can be with their face. I mean, I'm sure like many deaf people in their lives can be, as you say, but like Marley Matten and Troy Kotz are her kind of these veterans of um, deaf theater and deaf film. Like she won an Oscar, obviously, when she was like 22. Um, they can just do so much with their hands and their faces and like they get like monologues or express all that that are really funny. Like the, you know, the scene where they like 
the, her um the teenage daughter's boyfriend love interest like catches the parent having sex basically and they have this incredibly uh hilarious and awkward conversation afterward there's just so much power in those performances that you know even something like sound of metal i don't think like doesn't have like actually deaf actors in it and i don't think you get quite that depth of experience that you do from watching them yeah marley matlin really stood out to me as someone who could easily be a movie star. She's just glowing in this movie and I could see her, uh, maybe her performances are broad and, uh, but I think that's part of like the movie star character. I just, I want to see her in big movies and it's so prohibitive, I guess. Just the, the... I mean, she's had a pretty good career. Like, I don't I mean, I she, she has, is, but it's not like or... she gets to be in, in big movies or gets to be the star of the show. She's usually like the person you hire to be the deaf. Right, she's been she's been representative where of, we need a deaf actor. of the deaf community also for so long. I mean, it's like you know yeah. you hire Marley Madeline and that's it. And obviously there is a paucity of opportunities. Yeah, but here, I mean, she just plays the mom, <laughs> and and, and, yeah. and I love that and in a powerful way. And when she's like begging her daughter to understand, or making mom jokes, or running the business, I just she gets to play an, an every woman character, and and she should because. She can. I think she can do it all. So I, it was really magical to see that. Yeah, I love I was they gonna, make. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was going to catch up on this, uh, but I, as you guys mentioned, not a lot of push that it actually came out. So forgot it came out. You guys reminded me this uh, afternoon. I did have time to watch it, but I saw this trailer at Green Night, and I'm like, I remember this being described from Sundance. And that's gonna make me cry. What is it gonna make me good cry? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's gonna make. <laughs> you I, may I'm... feel manipulated by how it makes you cry, but I think the emotional I... pull of it is kind of undeniable. Did you cry yeah, the no. second time you watched it, Katie? Uh, yeah. A little teary. Uh, you know that uh, in the end of Coco, like the famous scene at the end of Coco where he plays the song and like. I think I'm stealing this from something Griffin Newman's on blank check, but like you get up this and you're like, oh shit, are they going to do it? Oh shit. Oh no. Is that, are they going to do the song? And then it happens and you're like, ah, uh, that happens at the end of Coda. And you're oh, just like, no, you're just there. Coco is a soundtrack I own that I can't put on shuffle because of that goddamn song. I mean, I'm like, right. obviously that's a high standard. I'm not going to say it's going to get you just like Coco does, but like it's Coda similar, would be very uh, upset if you didn't cry at the end. Let's put it that way. Like that's, <laughs> the, this is the kind of movie that it is. All right. I don't want to upset Coda then. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I hope, I mean, I, I tweeted something to this effect, but like, you know, people are watching Ted Lasso right now. I think if you are the audience for Ted Lasso, you are the audience for Coda and they're both on Apple TV. So I think that is probably that. very Actual. true. Yep. <laughs> Who would have guessed Apple TV was the wholesome streamer? It's, uh, it's kind of, I mean, they are the way. same company that doesn't allow like any sort of adult rated content on the iTunes store. So I'm not shocked. So guess what, guys? Chang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings is coming out September like they said it would, only in theaters. Um, I was wrong. us last week. Uh, I, we said I it mean, would come yes, out then. Yes, the rest but of you. we don't celebrate our, our co-hosts' uh, abject failure and wrong. That's right. No, you're great. Uh, patches. Hey, chin up, Dave. 
So there was a fun period of time where they pushed back, Sony pushed back Venom Let There Be Carnage. So I thought I was going to be swinging in for a a little strut of I told you so. Uh, But then uh, Disney had its earnings call, which would have been the time period to let people know about the plan for Shang-Chi and going forward. And I was shocked, I tell you, at the coverage (laughs) and direct quotes of this call. Not only because Shang-Chi isn't moving, nor is the Eternals moving, nor are they, and they're talking about premiere access as if it was a thing of the past. But moreover, all Disney is moving forward <laughs> as if uh, the pandemic is over. Profits are up at the park. Uh, cruises are getting going again, and all the <laughs> movies are all the movies are <laughs> staying. Profits, profits are up at the park is truly one of the most damning. <laughs> sentence i mean it just it's definitely it, it's, aligned directly from jurassic park yeah I, it just it feels like the uh perfect synopsis of capitalism <laughs> just profits are up at the park yeah so disney went from being uh, not profitable in its entertainment ventures to be back to being profitable which means from the standpoint of a giant faceless corporation which they are there's no reason for them to do anything so i know we're trying to debate when we end our pandemic because we're trying to, you know, do it responsibly and based on logic. But what I learned is not only is it so bad that they're going to sacrifice movies to the theaters, but the thing that we're seeing with all these things are bombing at the box office because no one wants to acknowledge there's a pandemic going on is going to continue for the rest of this calendar year. So it's not great. I don't think it's great news for the movies, even though, like, you're going to have the option to go back, right? I don't think it's well, great news for the starting, movie. Uh, starting tomorrow, I believe, and we're recording this on Monday, August 15th, uh, starting tomorrow yeah. in New York, you are going to be, I mean, who knows how well they're going to enforce this, but you are technically going to be required to show proof of vaccination when you go to the movies here. So they will be safer environments so you can have peace of mind when you go to the movie, but it's obviously going to drive attendance down because there are so many morons out there who are not vaccinated. Um, yeah, we don't know what percentage of the free guy box office was vaccinated or not vaccinated. So statistically, to a faceless business, that's just a, a poor performance. I'm really someone needs somebody needs to step forward and try to speak like reality to the industry. Disney's way of doing that was saying, like, "What is the reality? Though? What is what are you saying?" Like. Everybody took a write down for movies that were supposed to come out in 2020. That's going to be a result. I don't know how much good faith action is going to happen in terms of honoring those contracts. Like, what should have happened is Disney, like HBO Max, should have pissed some people off and paid a lot of people off and reshuffled for a way for the most people to see the content, which is what they said about Black Widow was the the reason they did it. Go ahead. Not to divorce this too much from the the park attendances up of it all, but the movies are not just, the movie theaters are not just fighting uh, for the profits for the calendar year 2021. They're fighting an existential battle for their continued existence. And the feeling is, and I understand where this feeling is coming from, that if they cede too much ground, they will never be able to get it back. Um, and the industry is simply going to migrate to streaming. And so there is an extra, I just, it's worth acknowledging um, when, and obviously, I, you know, to what extent Disney factors this in the equation, I don't know. But at least as far as the movie theaters are concerned and their 
desire to stay open and get whatever content they can to have an excuse to keep the lights on, it's not just about their profits for this year. I mean, but it really is that's what I mean. justifying I'm d- the viability of the business. Dave, do you think that movie theaters should shut down? Is it moral failure for Disney to put movies in theaters? Is it a moral failure? On Disney's side, yes. On the movie theaters, no. I get what David's saying, and they're struggling to... But if the, to, if the studios know, don't put, release movies, the movie theaters the movie will close. The movie theaters will shut down. They, the movie theaters can't be open unless Disney puts out a movie. Sure. Yeah, in 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 theory. Like, I get... This, this, wasn't, this wasn't not a problem before the pandemic. Like, last Oscar season, I was pretty sure I could see Marriage Story on Netflix and go to the independent theater and see Marriage Story. It's a big problem for, like, blockbusters, and they need to pay people for day-and-date releases because, like Disney acknowledged on the call, and I'm sorry for hyping on Disney, but we got all the data from them via never, this You never call. have to be sorry for hyping <laughs> Disney, on Disney. No, we're sorry. Hey, this is a love podcast. Sorry, Disney, <laughs> chin up. Shut up. I, Disney, I respect you, we but you're a you. piece you don't of have a shit. They're face, <laughs> no, they have Mickey Mouse. It's like Baba, Pick what's up those his ears. name? He's a person? The, the people who could save the movie industry and also reap all the profits from it are Disney. And they don't do that by withholding things. That's why it's like the... What are they national- withholding? They're putting it in theaters. No, no, no. I, I know. I was, let me finish the thought. The National Theater Organization's coming out against Black Widow was dumb. That was the time that I was like, theaters, you shouldn't be stepping out and doing this because they did the same thing that I'm saying is so bad with Disney, where they're like, there just isn't a pandemic on. But they came out against it because it was bad, right? Like, they were just like, this movie sucks. <laughs> Why don't you make a show of this? They said that there was so much money left on the table for people besides Disney because of basically day and date releasing. Oh, right. There was also that. Which I understand, and there was, but then Disney needs to, you know, pay those people right. Does it make it difficult for theaters? Yes. Does it make it more difficult for theaters than any other business right now? I don't. I don't think so. I just. I don't. I don't see the reason. I. I don't see the the solution here. Put them. People want the movies on streaming. Is that? Are you frustrated that it's not on Disney Premier Access? Is that the problem? Uh, yeah. Because there's mean, a lot of. Fr- you're not alone here. No, I'm frustrated that it's not on Premier Access in terms of like having a money-making solution in order to get more p- eyeballs on it. Why, it why seems, doesn't... Oh, go on. It seems like the reason it's not on Premier Access is because they got called out for Black Widow. And but won't it have more eyeballs on, on it when it comes out on Disney Plus? Like, can it play in theaters and then come to streaming? I mean, yeah, can, it can. can Shang-Chi 45... eventually be a hit? In a in a for, well, can it be a hit for Disney? Yes, with numbers that we'll never see. Yes, they could walk around <laughs> saying it's a hit the Black entire Widow. time. Right. Yeah, can it be a hit in terms of like box office gross? All the box office math is pretending who, that, like nothing's really happening. I mean, the box office is a who cares? Like, Ryan Reynolds was tweeting after Free Guy, uh, which was kind of lackluster, even though people were celebrating Free Guy, big original IP scores this much money type headlines. Ryan Reynolds says they want to make a sequel. Yeah, Clearly, I mean, they have the the data to say that there was enough interest in the movie, or that enough people would show up. Or I don't know. Like I continue can to. The I mean, fail? just overall, I continue to find the numbers that the box office has had this summer to be encouraging, and maybe that's not based in reality. But I just, given that we are how quick people are to forget that we were in a uh, what has so far been 
a once in a century pandemic and you know a century from now it may seem like a silly thing to call it but the you know the fact that free guy can open almost 30 million dollars the fact that jungle cruise can almost gross 200 million dollars in the united states even though it's open day and date uh, at home is in- incredible testament to me people are bothering people to, to go movie. to the movies at least to some extent yeah, yeah and, I, like, and the movies that have opened exclusively theatrically have done particularly well for the most part. Um, and obviously the premium of, of Disney Premier Access makes going to the theater a little bit more appetizing because spending $30 to watch something at home is, is a tough pill to swallow. And you know, maybe negatively affected Suicide Squad, which was streaming for no additional cost to HBO Max. But uh, I, I, I don't know, I find myself strangely encouraged by all of this. But I think that Disney should... You know, really, <laughs> to, to divorce myself from the reality of capitalism completely, should tie should charge forty five dollars for uh, all of the movies they put on premiere access and tithe fifteen dollars of every purchase directly to theaters, a collective fund for theaters yep. across the country. You know what? And, that sounds like a great solution. Like, yes, yeah, something. But the, the thing that I want to say is that the the place where there was reasonable action there was people capable of making a decision that weren't do i want to be exposed to a deadly virus or not is the disney corporation they have the money they have the means to make this right my devil's and advocate what, here is it incentivizes people to get vaccinated great maybe maybe it does By that would be great if, theaters that'd be great if disney was saying people should get vaccinated they had donald duck tell people I mean, to pay their taxes does, why is it the company to my, you know if we if if jj abrams didn't release star wars <laughs> yes. gun control in this country thing that it's like yeah maybe if i mean i if maybe if we get to a point where like everyone who wants to see dune i, I don't think dune is gonna have oh, that's not the, in this case everyone wants to see uh, the bond movie once yeah, yeah I mean, you know needs to be vaccinated then uh, maybe we'll get somewhere people are like fuck it give me the shot i gotta see what happens i gotta see if uh specter i am the architect of all of your pain <laughs> returns it is <laughs> it is hilarious to me that the movie in which robbie malik plays bond villain hasn't come out yet because i'm certain i've seen it I just yeah. feel almost, like that already happened. It has been almost eight yeah, months. Yes, so it was called Bohemian months. Rhapsody. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it has been almost 18 months since Daniel Craig hosted the SNL that was scheduled to promote this movie. As, uh, as <laughs> Is that movie, the, so. ladies and gentlemen, the weekend one? I don't know. That could have been an earlier one. I, I just wonder if it has like lived on in meme format for <laughs> the, the entire time the Bond movie has not been out. <laughs> anyway... Uh, wouldn't it be nice if instead of having to worry about all of these things, businesses and vaccines and whatnot, we could just take our rich white asses, Dave, you can be honorary uh, white for, for the purposes of segment three, and go to Hawaii on vacation. Yeah, that'd be a great segment if the show did those. Yeah, segue. perfect. Yet again, David Nails <laughs> also not how if the show we, works. Also, if we were rich, that would be nice. Yeah, that'd also that. <laughs> God, what the hell? <laughs> ah! I uh, got scared like I do watching The White Lotus on HBO, uh, the most anxiety-inducing series of uh, 2021, I would say. Yeah, for, for our final segment tonight, we're going to talk about 
Something that I guess was kind of a slow burn hit. It seems like it was big. Was the light one of big? It was only six episodes and was a huge deal by the end. So somewhat quick burn. Um, yeah, no, a, a quick burn, but it, well, a slow ascent in terms of like people catching on and actually watching it. I think it took a while for people to go into that splash pool in the pineapple room, if you will. Um, plunge pool. Good lord. Plunge pool. Plunge pool. I, am, pool. I am so sorry. Um, <laughs> rail me. Uh, this is the new series created by Mike White. Are we Mike White fans? Uh, Enlightened. I mean, I'm a big Orange County fan. And what you think of uh, when you think of uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Claire Danes. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah, that's right, Claire Danes. Um, I do think I do. I want to stop you here real quick, just to say that I think <laughs> a large portion of our audience probably has not seen the masterpiece Orange County, the film, not the television show, the OC. Uh, a film that predated the OC and is better in every conceivable way. I would really encourage you to go and and take the 100 minutes to you know look at the, what the the definition of mazered is. It's kind of cherry tree. Um, okay, to uh, don't think give away about all the good Jack stuff. Black getting naked and starting the revolution. Go watch Orange County. The whole the whole question is what is is Mike White like famous for anything in particular? Do you think people know Mike White from something? So I don't feel like a lot of people or, watched Enlightened. What are we like when you say people, do you mean like film Twitter people? I don't know. The masses? Is he I mean he worked on Freaks Freaks and Geeks. He was on Freaks and Geeks. Uh like he, he showed up like sleeping on Kim Kelly's couch on the episode Kim Kelly is my friend, which is great. Uh and School of Rock. I would say School of Rock is the biggest one. Yeah, that was that was yeah. his most mainstream hit. Um, he also the wrote the emoji movie. I'm learning as I look at his yeah. IMDb. He did. This is, he he talks about it a lot on the White Lotus press tour about being like, get your money. money. You know, yeah, that's it. He's like, I want to buy a house in Hawaii. I will write the emoji movie. But, um, and he wrote and is... directed Brad Status, which I quite enjoyed. But uh, the my, I think the White Lotus was a big hit with like New Yorker vulture readers, and uh, that is what we are seeing. And I think he is vulture famous. He's definitely hmm. vulture famous. No, that is a perfect way to put it. Um, and and maybe this is the quintessential vulture show. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's just like it is. It, it's reflective. I think Mike White was looking at himself a lot in every direction, both like chastising or self-flagellating over being a rich white person and being of in a position of privilege. But I've also seen him. Uh, say that he put a lot of his own, like writing television felt like a service job at times where it's like you're catering to people and people are yelling at you all the time. Uh, so he created this show about the White Lotus Resort in Hawaii where super rich people would come and stay. And in the case of this group that uh, descends upon the White Lotus in the six episodes of this series, just heinous, uh, uber rich people who i don't know what's going on with these people they're they're experiencing a reckoning their real lives are catching up with their their fake lives their bubbles are being burst even in the beautiful resort i mean they're i don't know what uh hawaiian island they're actually on uh i know that mike white owns a house in Kauai, so it's, maybe it's they went there somewhere okay um, wait, I wanna know- I mean, the, the, the show was filmed at the four seasons resort maui at wailea um, oh, wow. I want to go back to just what you said about them being heinous and we can talk about this and I'm a little behind in the Twitter discourse about it, but I think one of the many great things about this show 
is that it's not like succession in which everyone is outwardly heinous and a lot of the comedy comes from the different way- ways in which they're heinous no one on the white lotus is relatable exactly but you're relate you're invited to see them as distinct human beings and to find sympathy with them oh, and I think to find relatable. things that they do that are relatable yeah that's what i mean like i mean the jake lacy character to i think alexander is- daddario's character in that i'm ridiculously attractive but yeah also, you do you look good in a, uh, a bikini i love you in that <laughs> yeah. but i think bikini. you're you're invited to loathe the jake lacy character and find other people to root for and then the trick of the show is that it goes on you the unlikability and the um potential for destruction in all of these people, no matter how much they may seem like real people to you, uh, becomes more and more clear. Yeah, I, I think I'm also incorrect the calling them in the, But I, Well, I don't know, but I do think that you're talking about the reckoning, the freezing, and I think something that was made abundantly clear by the end of the show is that the scale of the problems that they are experiencing is hilariously imbalanced with the scale of the problems that they are causing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that that is something the show is very upfront about. I mean, it's, as I said, it's clear by the end. But it's, it's present from the very beginning. And the first episode does something that is I, I thought was really uh, I, I don't know what the best adjective I want to say like excellent, but um, uh, was very difficult to stomach, even in a mordant way. When you can appreciate what's going on, which is they Wait, have what? a character uh, who is very very pregnant, oh, yeah. and her water breaks, and she's an employee at the hotel. And she is uh, quickly disappeared from the show. Um, Out of sight, out of mind. I mean, that is essentially the way that we are introduced to Murray Bartlett. It was extraordinary in the show uh, to his character of Armand, who's the hotel manager. And his first task that day is really to keep her out of sight and not interfere with the bubble. Uh, Everything must be perfect for the guests. This woman is in extreme pain. She's having the most dramatic event of her life. Get her out of here and keep it undercover. I mean, you know, it's funny. The show opens and somewhat notoriously now, I feel like after the six episodes with uh, Jake Lacey's bro character sitting in an airport telling a couple to fuck off and that someone just died and they're being taken away on the airplane. And so you have this kind of cast this murder. There's this murder mystery, I guess, that has. That's how people have framed it to me in conversation, which I find fascinating because this idea that someone died and I need to figure out who uh, quickly left my mind when I was thinking about this show. And actually, the specter of this pregnant woman uh, loomed much greater for me. I'm like, will she come back or like, will anyone think of this poor woman? And uh, they will not. No, they will definitely not. And what's so fascinating about all these characters, as you say, Katie, like I I I glibly kind of called them heinous and I think that they are to different magnitudes and at different times. Um, but many of them, I mean, Jennifer Coolidge plays this character, Tanya McQuaid. McQuaid. It's one syllable. It's two syllables that are last name. Yeah, it's not know. McQuaid. It's McQuad. <laughs> McQuad. McQuad. Um, so strange. And she's the most fascinating character because she is super rich. She's obviously at the White Lotus, this amazing resort. Um, and she's having great troubles in her life her mother died she seems very wayward and lost and doesn't know like what her life is meant to be and she's had troubles with men and relationships fall apart and now this one connection she has her mother's died she's gonna throw her ashes in the water and she doesn't even know why she's there it seems like um and this woman becomes deeply connected to the spa manager belinda played wonderfully i think by this woman natasha rothwell um and is like so taken by this spiritual journey in one of the early episodes even i think it's just a spa treatment and some mm-hmm. mumbo jumbo words that it's like uh yeah this is this is this is taken jennifer coolidge's character on this trip and she's like i want to 
give you everything. You should be a spiritual leader. You should be running your own spa. You should have everything. I will fund you. And over the course of the series, this woman is lured in to the possibilities of this rich white woman. Despite clearly knowing better. Like she's like, she's like, I know how this is probably going to go, but I'm just going to go with this. But she can't say no, because this could be the, the, the moment of her dreams. And, and in true fashion, Tanya, Jennifer Coolidge's character diverts attention and falls for some random guy at the resort. And by the end, she's like, ah, you know what? I've convinced myself. This is actually the bad behavior that I often do. I often like glob onto people and throw money at them to try and solve my emotional problems and and this is the this is I'm doing it again and she's right she is yeah. doing the thing that she is wrong about doing all the time and yet even though she has come to a just and fair uh realization about her life is destroying this woman yep. and i find that complexity runs through almost every character and almost every interaction on the show and it's what i loved about White Lotus. I feel like I just haven't seen an adult drama where there's just characters. I mean, this is kind of like Mad Men. I'm there's there's good parts, there's bad parts, there's heinous behavior, there's curious and and there is real struggle even for these one percenters at times. But like the way that these white folk cannot, like they're very aware of their privilege and they're very aware of how they're hurting people and how modern society is challenging them, and yet. And yet, even with all the awareness, they cannot help but destroy people. And that is a tough thing to watch. Um, and it's important, I think. I, I really loved the series. What did you guys what did you guys make of this? Was it that successful for you? I'm gonna say yes. Uh, except I <laughs> loved hating every single one of these characters. So it was not uncomfortable for me to watch. I was like, yes, fuck, I hope they all get punched in the nose. Like, but they like, don't. That part. No, I mean, like the lack of comeuppance is part of the discomfort too, right? Uh, absolutely. Well, for me, y- yes. Not to completely go to the finale yet until we decide to get there. But yes. we will spoil the White Lotus. We'll really we we'll will spoil the spoiler White Lotus. So we will spoil it. There will be a second season. It's an anthology show, so this is a complete story. You should definitely go check it out before hearing us spoil it. But like, um, from episodes one through five, I was just like yes like reveal this have a show about this have this cynical dark comedy about how classism is just like this horrible curse that leaves things in its wake because it's a monster of its own uh even when it's being wielded by people that are in theory smart or emotionally in touch i think you could empathize with any one of these characters, and I think there's certainly scenes where you're meant to empathize with a lot of the characters, and that can ratchet up the tension if you really buy into it. Um, but I guess this pick up sort of where Matt left off in his introduction, I did sort of think it was a mystery for the beginning, so I was very happy around episode three when I was like, oh, I know what this is now, and just like settled in, and it wasn't that <clears throat> I stopped caring about who was going to end up dead it was that it could have been any of them and i would have been just as happy to see what sort of uh larry david-esque uh confluence of events got one of them uh killed um and i'm gonna say in the conclusion even though i don't think i would have been able to necessarily guess it and it's not important to guess it ultimately i really like where each one of these characters ended even if there are some weak parts or they do something that maybe you wouldn't do, it makes them harder to empathize with. 
the way it sort of wraps all up um, with, I guess, sort of a parallel of the pregnant uh, lady from episode one. But the idea that, like, just when you think maybe there's going to be some justice and some people get some perspective, we double back down on just staying in the hotel. And I think it's really smart drama. Um, and then I also think it's... Wait, what is um, the uh, parallel to the uh, birth in the first episode? Is this? Are you referencing when Armand poops in a suitcase? No. No, that was not me saying you're giving birth every time you poop. I was saying, Speak once caught. By the way, an amazing special effect. I, I assume it wasn't real, but like you Woo! really could see the poop coming out of his. Butt. Yeah, yeah. No, no. This, that's that's some HBO. Uh, television they shot it. They created it in a. Uh, it was volume capture. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mandalorian capture. Style. Yeah, there were 260 cameras on Murray Bartlett, and they yeah. put him into a 3D environment where they can make the poop look photoreal. Yeah. Cost wherever, 100 million dollars. Wherever you move the camera, so worth it. Uh, no, but I was talking about the character of Kai once he leaves the resort. We only get to, we don't get to see him again. Uh, but just the idea that, like, maybe something that we witness in these six episodes will burst somebody's bubble. And it maybe works for one character, depending on your read of that character. And everybody else gets shaken, but not shaken to the point where they're going to make choices that make everybody's lives better. They might have made some personal discovery about themselves, or they might have come to peace with an ugly part of themselves. But nobody's contributing to society in this series, and it's kind of hilarious. I mean, even if they wanted to, they couldn't just because of the system they're fucking in. Like, a Hawaii resort is a great place to set this sort of classism drama. Uh, and dramedy. the uh, can, the COVID restraints work to its advantage. You're t- I mean, there are obvious thematic reasons why we don't see Kai again, for the same reason we didn't see the trainee again in the first episode. Um, but... A part of that is because they couldn't really shoot anywhere outside of the uh, resort. And so they weren't able to shoot, even if they had wanted to, which would have been ill-advised. They couldn't shoot Kai at the police station and Kai at his home or wherever the fuck. So uh, oh, wow. this is, yeah, so this is a show that really, you know, they were able to go on the boats and they were able to be in the resort. And that's about it. And they were able to make that work to their advantage. They faked an airport somewhere. So no, that's that is true. That, that's, that's a very real good point. Air- I've been to that airport. That airport is. Oh, okay. That is a real airport. That is a very good point. Uh, I guess my only counter argument to that would be that they had to go to that airport in order to get there and leave. Right. <laughs> so why Pick not film, uh, <laughs> film something on the way? But um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, well, everyone's also conspicuously socially distanced at the airport. I mean, they cut it well, but... Except for when they're all on the, the line to get on the plane. Um, they do... Oh, yeah, you you're know, right. There, there, was, um, there was some chatter in the uh, span between the fifth and the sixth episode that the reason that, that uh, what's her face's lover um, is coughing is because he has COVID and they're going to bring COVID in. It's like an actual. I'm glad they did not do that. That, This was Katie's theory. I was, I didn't, I didn't originate this theory. I saw someone else say, I like the idea Um, of it. I I like the idea of all these people's world being rocked equally by COVID. Although of course we know that COVID did not rock everyone's world equally. So in some ways it would have thematically worked. I, I'm perfectly fine with the, with the show existing in a world without COVID, sure. um, even if it only exists because of COVID. I mean, this is a show that, as far as I understand, basically went into production. I mean, they greenlit in October of last year. I'm pretty October sure he wrote that it during because right because the they were like, yeah. if you write something that can we can shoot on a resort and on the water, then like we'll greenlight it. Like as yeah. long as it is producible, we need content. Let's go. And uh, so the show would not have existed if not for the pandemic. So hey. 
there's your silver lining, I guess. Hope you like it. Um, but my, uh, I, and I really appreciated it as a miniseries, if only because I really need something to live for on Sunday nights during the pandemic. But I do have to say, I think there's a possibility it would have been stronger as like a late 90s era PTA three-hour mosaic film. Um, I think that there is a lot of air getting let out of the tires and expanding this to six hours or expand. I mean, expanding is the wrong word because it was not in any other shape, but in making sure that it could fit six hours. And I think especially as we crescendo towards the end, um, there was not really a sense of build for me. There wasn't a sense of increased mania. There wasn't a sense of these fates being intertwined in a way that like, I really wanted the Magnolia like approach to this story. It would have made the catharsis feel um, more perturbed and and more unsettling and um, and I guess the very very end of the show, which is also complicated and doesn't lend itself to an easy read, uh, a little bit you know more so. But um, that's my one misgiving. We have so many movies that should be TV shows and TV shows that should be miniseries. I don't know, man. I like I, the performances are so good that I was getting something out of the show, even when it kind of hovered at the same note. Like it felt like episode three, four. Five Murray Bartlett was just getting high and doing something wacky, eating someone's ass, and I'm like, ah, oh, this again. But you know what? You're coming he's out really against good. ass eating. No, he's great <laughs> at it. I I would watch that once an episode. I gotta say, I knew that was coming because I had seen people tweeting about it, and I was behind on it, and I was stunned the extent to which it, that the uh, the physical action goes for it in that scene. It really is. You were behind uh, on the ass eating. I have heard complaints from. Some of ass my eaters. friends that the ass from from my ass eating friends absolutely <laughs> who were uh, disappointed actually at how brief it was um, and thought that they shied. <laughs> I away. didn't see briefs. <laughs> it's like <laughs> boy, um, thank you. Hey, maybe you guys are watching different things and no you know, primetime uh, television. But, even though it's HBO. Yeah, but you know, I, I haven't seen all of Looking, which was Murray Bartlett's last major show. But I'm guessing there was you know a lot of ass eating on that one as well, and probably for I uh, in a way that made this look tame, um, but. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it could have been tight as a drum as like a three-hour movie. Obviously, there is less of a market for that. And the conversation that the White Lotus was able to whip up as a six-week miniseries uh, that is now turned into a limited series that is now turned into a recurring show is great. Um, and another nail in the coffin for the binge model, thank God. But uh, even though I say that as someone who has literally watched four seasons of The Sopranos in the last 10 days. <laughs> yes, The Sopranos wasn't made on the binge. No, it's right. You're right. Uh, and I'm like gluttonously, I'm like the guy from Seven, just like fucking binge eating The Sopranos. Oh, until I hemorrhage. Uh, um, Kate, yeah. Katie, who are the MVPs for you? What are what are the standout moments of, of the show um, that's so character driven? And I don't know. It's every, every episode is a gift. Uh, the MVPs are Murray Bartlett and Jennifer Coolidge. I think obviously the feel like the no. put out, but also I wanted to bring up my complaint, which is that of all the characters who I think do have really well orchestrated arcs, I feel like the teenage daughter played by Sydney Sweeney kind of sticks out for me as someone who doesn't go anywhere other than kind of being horrible and then being the catalyst for her friend who makes a, uh, a righteously motivated, but really terrible decision that uh, ruins someone else's life. And she walks away. Oh. Uh, but Richard Lawson on your website, I thought, summed up her arc very, very well when he pointed towards this one line that she has in the finale that I think justifies the entire character. Which is where she says um, something bad could have happened. Right. But that, like, that's her being exactly where she was when the show began. 
I mean, I guess well, the point I mean, is that all these, these people blindly leave. Yeah, I get. I, yeah, I don't think I saw where she went in the meantime. Like her relationship with her friend is complex, but really mostly only on the friends on Paula's side of things. Like she kind of continues to exist in her lack of self awareness and being terrifying and a teenager uh, the whole time. That's yep. I mean, I was a teenage boy, so I only have certain things, but yet that's a teenage girl, but to me. Oh, she's so scary. Maybe that's my problem. I was just too afraid. I think she's dealing with a lot of like racial consideration or just like she's trying, but she is callously. That's the problem. Like being aware of it is different because she makes the choice at the end to like be herself. That's still a journey. She's still understanding that she might be friends with this young woman because she's black and she feels like hey i need i need a black friend to justify my worldview or to not be stuck in my white bubble and to be mm-hmm. able to preach what i want to preach um and it's it's like a fake friendship i feel like she's taking advantage of race in a very modern and strange way and um and and she has the realization and then she reels then back, she back like she that. has not changed and not changing is not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's what this show is ultimately yeah. about. But we see the possibility of of true awakening with a lot of these characters. I mean, not not changing is not a bad thing for the quality of the show, but is a yeah, bad thing. No. For yes, I'm sorry. Thank you, thank you for clarifying. Yes, for my enjoyment and uh, this observational experiment. Yeah, it links back to the thing Steve Zahn says, being like, "Well, you know, the world's a bad place. What are we supposed to do? Not go on vacation and like give all our a- money away?" And and you're like, like there are options here beyond that, but like you kind of get to that that precipice and then just walk right back away from it right um where you know wealth it's stratified to the point where they do feel a sort of inflexibility as to what they can do with it um and feel like they sort of have to perpetuate that role in their performative in a way that the daughter is in terms of you know like her whole character and initially her friend as well are very performative and you know reading derrida at the beach or whatever the fuck they're doing and then you know the facade sort of falls away but one thing that doesn't fall away is cristobal tapia devere's incredible score for the show oh, man. Um, which i think deserves the same sort of acclaim that people fall over their faces for to give to um uh, why is his name escaping me? He's very famous. Um, uh, are you going to accept Nicholas Patel oh, right Nicholas now? Patel. Nicholas wow, Patel. don't drag my boy uh, Nicky. What? Yeah, Nicholas no, Patel I'm, didn't do anything to you. Don't drag him. <laughs> no, I love, I love Nicholas Patel, and his his theme for Succession is absolutely incredible and deserves all the acclaim that it gets, but I would love to see that same uh, conversation happen around. Uh, like it is. I mean, the, the, the gasping and, uh, noises. I, and the, I want to see more memes. I want to see more. Uh, 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 no, I don't like it when you do it. The White Lotus score to replace the Kirby enthusiasm theme of the like, uh, I mean, pointing I think, out white again, people being stuck the, in their own problems. Yeah. Okay. That's a fine point. I do think, you know, to, to go back to spreading the love to Nicholas Patel as well, there's room for all of these conversations, all of the HBO shows to have their own memes and to have their own part of the conversation. But I do think that the music he brought to this show, uh, like New York in some rom-coms, for example, is sort of a character unto itself <laughs> and uh, is worthy of a claim. I also really want to point out to everyone listening to this that it's imperative that you go to Cristobal Tapia de Vere's Wikipedia page and look at his photo. That's all. I'm not going to do that during this podcast, so not to get distracted. But um, let, let's wrap up a little bit and talk about the White Lotus by talking about the finale. Because I really want to talk about, we haven't really talked about Alexandra Daddario's character, Rachel, who is obviously a journalist who writes aggregated profiles. And I was like, by episode two, I was like, damn, girl, I have, I have 
advice to give you. I'm like, go pitch <laughs> the stories you want to do. What are you writing? What are you doing right now? Yeah. And even I'm making the Faustian deal for her. I'm like, you you do have a rich benefactor now. You could be pitching better stories, having a bit more of a dream in this career. Um, but aside from that, like, uh, that is such a hard thing to watch. Apparently that was the kind of crux for Mike White, that he this is the story he really started off thinking about uh does he have uh, a friend who works in journal i've been wondering why he why he understands the specifics of this so well i think it's again i think he's pretty tied to vulture and then the new york magazine <laughs> if you read his interview his postmortem interview with vulture he's he's like analyzing vulture writers tweets about the white lotus oh, i think he's no. a deep on vulture oh no mike and white I, back away i say this with love with to to vulture um but yeah i think he has a keen sense of the internet too i i will say i interviewed um this kid, Fred, oh God, Fred Hessinger, Hessinger. who was having the a year. He's he was in the Fear Street, White Lotus. He was in what was the News of the World. He's in uh, Woman in the Window. Oh, that in the window, mega hit, which yeah. is actually the first one of the first movies he ever made. It was shot two years ago. Um, that kid is having a year. He's also great playing the switch and being a dud. Um, who loves staring at the ocean. Um, but he, I was like, how does Mike? Did you talk to Mike White about Gen Z? How are you guys writing? these Gen Z characters together. It's like, oh no, Mike actually has really just has this sense of how people online talk and like was telling me what Gen Z people my age say, <laughs> like the slang we use. And I'm like, that sounds right. I think Mike is pretty plugged in. Um, but yeah, Alexandra Daddario's character, quite a journey. And then the ending in the finale, you know, she realizes she's in a horrible, horrible marriage with an asshole who's obsessed with money and obsessed with his mom, Molly Shannon, amazing guest starring role in the show um and then she goes back to him in the end and i i was i was pretty shocked but maybe Incredible. i shouldn't have been because that's what the show is all about what did you make of the uh alexandria daddario arc in this do you think she knows that he murdered a guy no oh, yeah yeah i think oh, i think yeah. everyone knows i don't think it's a secret i just think she doesn't well I guess no, the that's police crazy. know. It's like the everyone knows. It's it's like the, everyone at the hotel is dealing with the police walk him away in front of everyone. Who else would They've have? clearly let him go and interrogated him. What do you mean, who else at, would have? Or would they have covered it up and been like, you're the ultimate, no, you're a what? guest of the White House? No, Lotus. there is like on-screen evidence that this is public knowledge. I mean, they're all standing around after he gets stabbed, uh, Armando gets stabbed, and, and Jake Lacey's standing on the sidelines being like, uh, gawking. So maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. The cops are all there. Even on loving in the war in the peace room, I cannot abide. <laughs> <'Cause>, uh... <laughs> um, so I, she knows. And I, she's still going back. I feel like I understand it because there's that point where Molly Shannon's like, you never have to work again. And I was like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Faustian bargain is what it is. I mean, part of this is my natural cynicism about marriage. But what did you think you were doing, Rachel? Like I the the thing that I like the most about the Rachel Shane dynamic is it's so obvious that both of them think that they're completely right and I am they if they they just would have stopped to try to communicate at any time before this it all could have been avoided and that's the great train wreck of it the great dramatic train wreck of it is like I get where they're both coming from Shane has been raised by his mother and just wants to have an attractive wife and found somebody we thought was cool with that, and now she's not cool with it. And Rachel, obviously, wants to like be her own person, didn't realize she was signing up for that trophy wife thing. Just like, man, talk talk to your talk to your fiance. 
Do you feel like you understand that, like how they had a relationship before this? I don't know that I totally. <laughs> no. That's what get I. It. I'm like, wouldn't have he revealed himself before? Yeah. What what kind of dates did they go on? I don't know. She said that, like, you know, the doors would open. It was fun going around the city with him. Like, all the doors would open and stuff. And I could get yeah. that. And it's supposed to be super fast, right? So, like, yeah. Yeah, I could get it would that. have to be. It would have to be that they, it was like a whirlwind romance, and she was just a struggling journalist and was seduced by the idea of being with a handsome guy who was going to make her never worry about money again. And you can imagine and when then, he doesn't have something going wrong in his life, which it often wouldn't, when he doesn't have a pineapple sweet bothering him, that he is a uh, more enjoyable but person. But it's like if someone like that finds the pineapple sweet in every situation, I feel yeah, that's like. True. Right. You're but something just, to negotiate and bargain. You're if, either, yeah, you're either someone who just rolls with the punches, or you're someone who feels entitled to everything. That although you can get. it is possible that his mom was always there. Like this was yeah. the first time he seems to have ever stepped out in the real world. He has to call his mom on his honeymoon. She has to fly there. Like, has he ever been that far away from his mom where he couldn't make a call and she did the dirty work? That's her job in his life. Um, and now he's flailing because he doesn't have the security of his like one percenter. I I just hope line. that they don't have a prenup and that uh, she is able to stick it around for a little while. I think they talk about that. Take a bunch of his money. Yeah, I think they have an like, elaborately the structured outcome. prenup. Um, I'm sure they do, but I get man can dream. Another question as we maybe wrap this up: Did this make you guys want to go to a resort in Hawaii? Oh yeah. Be honest with yourself. Yes, yeah, definitely. Same. It Same. looked beautiful. The air. The Dave wind, is looking at us skeptically. I water. feel like Dave knows better. Oh, but, I just, I, w- w- one, I'm not a huge fan of the ocean. But that's where the, that's, true, we've kai- established that's where the kaiju live. Um, and uh, two, I've been fortunate enough to have literally been these people in your Puerto Vallarta's, in your weird California Marriott towns. And whatnot. And all I did there was just get in a cycle of drinking and going to pools, which I feel like I could do anywhere. So, like, (laughs) I I didn't want to specifically go to Hawaii. If I was at Hawaii, I'd be visiting lost sets, and that would be like what I'd be doing. (laughs) I I think the big the big appeal to me is not having any responsibility for a little while. I do like like being able to be drunk and not. I would like to go to a swim up bar. I don't really care where the swim up bar is. Yeah, I mean that. Let's yes, let's let's go to a resort right. town that isn't right. on Hawaii. All right, live fighting in the war room, twenty twenty two at the swim up bar. Yeah, we'll there with all of our Patreon money. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one thing that I think the show does get. I, I've been fortunate enough to go to Kauai, where you really feel the tension of the tourism Rags and all around. and the uh, yeah, right. Uh, this was my one big trip. Um, you, you feel the tension of of the culture and how like. Uh, a lot of Hawaiians do not want Americans around or like they have been taken over by American culture and they, they're trying to cling to being Hawaiian and being independent. And this, they kind of flirt with this. And I've seen Mike White get some flack, even in his post-mortem interview with Vulture, which they love the show. Um, you know, people are like, Vulture did not pay for this podcast. Though. Where is the uh, where is the Hawaiian kind of like representation? Where's the Hawaiian voice here? It's just, a, it is a lot of white people. It's a very specific perspective. And I think it's kind of important, uh, even if, if it feels like it's preaching to a certain audience or trying to get a certain audience to be reflective. Um, the show does brush up against these tensions. The show does have what I see as dimensional characters on the other side of the line, Hawaiian locals who are just trying to live life and, and get out of the way of these 
this horrible snowball uh, coming at them. I don't have any. Week. I don't have patience for the argument for for this show that I've seen going around, you know, in some circles that it, you know the show didn't make enough time for the you know, local perspective because that's just asking it to be a different show. That's fundamentally not right. what this show is. Yeah. There are there are films, there are television shows. There's a beautiful film coming out that was at Sundance this year called "I Was a Simple Man" that is very very much about. Um, sort of a local Hawaiian experience, uh, Japanese American filmmaker. Uh, I mean, there, there. You can even see. You know, I wouldn't recommend this the same degree that I would. I was a simple man, and certainly not on these grounds. But you can even see it in The Descendants, if you want. Uh, you know, Alexander Payne's filtered view of of uh, you know a different perspective on Hawaii. But this is not that show, and it feels antithetical to what how art works and how storytelling works to ask it to be that show, particularly when it's so going to be in the show that it is. Yeah. Um, I'm just happy it brushed up against that. It was, it has enough clear sight to be able to say, it's weird that we're all sitting here and they're doing dances for us. And they're, this is their culture. We're forcing them to do that. I like that. It takes those moments, those asides. It's, it's just, it's a big show. It's, it's full of different observations. And I was so happy to watch it. Um, so now it's all streaming on hbo max and you can go watch it if we if we didn't spoil all of it for you and if uh tell us what you thought of the white lotus on uh on all of our platforms and such yeah the white lotus i would say even if you think you've been spoiled on the white lotus you should watch it that's all that's true get anxiety attacks like i did every sunday That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week talking about Annette, which is uh, going to be on Amazon Prime Video to watch at home safely. So watch it and discuss with us. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can go back and listen to episodes where we probably talked about Coda a little out of Sundance. And probably talked about the White Lotus in passing because we were getting hyped up on it six weeks ago or something. You can follow the narratives of our journey uh, throughout on fightingintheworm.com. You can also uh, contribute to the narratives of our journey, or at least comment on them on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review, we'll read it on the show. You know how it works, people. Come on. Otherwise, we're going to talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, and you don't want that i'm been david ehrlich uh right at indywire you can find me on twitter you can find me at indywire you can find me at a film festival near you too near you under your bed <laughs> and i'm dave with the seven you can follow me on twitter at da7e you can also listen to me on the storm of lost rewatch podcast and i am thankful and appreciative of mad patches's galaxy brains podcast which is another podcast you should check out and I'm just going to keep plugging it here in the podcast spot because he's done a really good job pimping fightingandthewarroom.com for like six years. So Galaxy Brains, Thanks. the Storm Lost Rewatch podcast. Two excellent podcasts you could find right now for free wherever good podcasts are found. Can I plug two more podcasts? I'm going to. Do it. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair where I'm on the Little Gold Men podcast where this week I talked to... 
Karina Longworth and Vanessa Hope, who are co-hosts of the Love is a Crime podcast, which is Vanity Fair's newest podcast, launches this week. You can listen to the first episode. It's this old Hollywood true story about Joan Bennett and Walter Wanger why their marriage ended and Vanessa Hope who is co-host is their granddaughter and she has this personal attachment to this story that was a huge scandal in 1950s Hollywood and is semi-forgotten now and it is but great. when is Karina Longworth going to co-host a podcast with Vanessa Hudgens? Uh, I will I will pitch that and uh, have that be Vanity Fair's next podcast. So, so what was the second podcast you wanted to recommend? Since you were actually describing Little Gold Men that uh, Since you did an interview with them, uh, I I did an interview with them about Love Is a Crime, which is the other right. Podcast. And so the Literally second podcast issues. you yeah, wanted the, to recommend is, is also Love is, is also crime. called Love Is a Crime. It's, yeah, it all, oh, it, sorry, it, I thought it, you were going to recommend Galaxy Brains. Now, <laughs> no, you had your time, my very trusted <laughs> colleague who I respect, and I'm proud of you for everything that you have achieved. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich K A T E Y R A C H, and we're all on Twitter at F I T W R, where you could say nice things to us too. Or you could answer this week's fighting round question, which was... Ding dong, cinema's dead. Uh, in honor of the Night House, what's your favorite cinematic supernatural mystery? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'll tell you when I'm done. My fair lady, I'm done.